Can you believe we're already coming to the end of Season 2 of Royals, Rebels, and Romantics? This month, we're celebrating some queens and taking a look at some of our favorite fiction. So glad you're joining us, and let's get ready to shake up some history. Hello and welcome to our discussion about victorious Queen Victoria, who was our first Jubilee Queen before the wonderful Platinum Jubilee celebrations of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II and before Queen Elizabeth II became the longest reigning monarch in British history there was Queen Victoria. And she was a Jubilee Queen, and for a while, she was the longest reigning monarch. So I thought it would be a fitting way to sort of wrap up some of our Jubilee celebrations to look back to our other Jubilee Queen, Victoria. Now, she did make a very big impression in her time. In fact, Shrabani Basu, a historian, selected Queen Victoria as Britain's greatest monarch. And here are some of the reasons. First, Victoria overcame the challenges to the throne and helped stabilize the monarchy. There was a lot of revolutionary sentiment at the time and a real distrust of the monarchy when Victoria came to the throne. And so she really did settle that. Her marriage to Prince Albert created the image of a virtuous family on the throne. That was something that they were able to share with the British people as they embraced photography. Now, I realize the current royal family may wish that had never happened, but it was Victoria and Albert who first really started sharing um, images with the public, family images, particularly Christmas images, And that was a way of sharing. They did monitor what they shared. But the idea of a family on the throne was very important and incredibly popular during the reign. Uh, Victoria also oversaw and actually Prince Albert basically managed the Great Exhibition in 1851. And the Great Exhibition launched and uh, raised money for many of the museums in London. And so it was not just really important at the time in 1851, it really created a legacy of museums in London. Britain also enjoyed the fruits of the Industrial Revolution. Now, the Industrial Revolution, of course, was not without controversy and was not without causing problems and you know, increasing poverty and dangerous working conditions in a lot of situations. At the same time, also, the many people in the population benefited from the railways and the bridges that were made of iron and steel and were not collapsing as much. And the science, the inventions that were happening at the time, and importantly, the underground, the whole new way of transporting people under the city um, was very important. Victoria also left a personal mark on the monarchy and on some of our traditions. For example, she popularized white wedding gowns. People had worn all kinds of different wedding gowns. And yes, there had been some people wearing white, but after Victoria, white wedding gowns became the popular thing to wear. And also um, family Christmas that had really fallen out of favor somewhat um, uh, in the monarchy and, and in other areas as well. And so the idea of a big family Christmas 
was something that Victoria and Albert really made popular and put on center stage. And finally, through her long reign and all of her children, nine children, um, she became the grandmother of Europe. In fact, um, people throughout Europe, different monarchies, different people called her the queen. And you, if you referred to the queen, you meant Queen Victoria. Now, that's how she was known throughout the world. And you know, Europe was going through all kinds of turbulent times. Now, of course, her plan and Albert's plan to intermarry throughout all the royal families of Europe and in that way prevent war, the plan didn't work. But it was a worthwhile plan and a good attempt. And perhaps it, you know, worked for a time. Anyway, when Victoria came to the throne, it had been nearly 200 years since Queen Anne. And so it had been a while since a queen had been on the throne. Um, queen Victoria was popular and Princess Charlotte, who had passed away, who had been the heir to the throne when King George IV was the king, his daughter, Princess Charlotte, had been very popular. So the notion of a queen on the throne was was not as shocking as it had been when Mary I came to the throne, certainly. However, um, Victoria's own uncle, Ernst, replied in this way when it was clear she would become queen. A woman on the throne of England? How ridiculous! Well, yes, he did call it ridiculous, but that's mostly because he wanted it for himself. So, Uncle Ernst did not get the throne. But when Victoria was born, she was sixth in line after um, the Prince Regent and the Duke of York and the Duke of Clarence, and the Duke of Kent, her father, and then here's Victoria. And so the Duke of Cumberland, Uncle Ernst, actually came after Victoria and she took the throne herself. She did not just pass it on to him. So she had some challenges growing up. Her father died when she was just a year old. He was the connection to the royal family. And so she and her mother were sort of seen as outsiders. Um, her mother was not well liked or accepted by the royals. And eventually her mother, Princess Victoire, or the Duchess, um, turned to John Conroy. And he was a very very controlling man, and he wanted power, and he saw the path to power being Victoria. And so he, along with the Duchess, set up the Kensington system, which was a very strict upbringing. Now, in some ways, that kept Victoria out of trouble, but in others, it made her so dependent on her mother and John Conroy. And so their plan was for her to become queen before she was 18. And for the two of them, you know, officially, it would be her mother, the Duchess, who would be the regent. But John Conroy had all kinds of plans, and he was right there. In fact, when William IV was king, he said publicly that he was determined to live long enough for Victoria to turn 18 so that she could take the throne on her own and not have to have her mother and John Conroy. He was very public about his dislike for the Duchess, and it was mutual, believe me. So when Victoria turned 18 on the 24th of May, 1837, William IV realized, I guess it was time to go, because he died less than a month later. He died on the 20th of June. So he hung on just long enough. And when Victoria received word that she was now the queen, she 
kept a diary, which she had earlier, and she wrote in it that she went downstairs alone, underline, 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 and met with her ministers alone, underline, underline, underline. Because even as an 18-year-old and all of the time before then, she was not allowed to walk downstairs without holding somebody's hand. And she was not allowed to meet with people alone. And now that she was queen, she was. So she moved into Buckingham Palace. That would She would be the first royal to live in Buckingham Palace as her official residence. Her mother needed to come with her because, of course, she was an unmarried woman and had to be chaperoned. So her mother came with her, but she put her mother's rooms far away from her own, and John Conroy was out of the picture. And so actually that ended up being good for her and her mother. Without John Conroy being so manipulative, eventually Victoria and her mother became very close again. And when, after Victoria got married and started having children, um, her mother was very important to her and was very much involved in the raising of her kids. So Victoria's coronation was the 28th of June, and it was in Westminster Abbey. She was the third single woman to be crowned a regnant queen. Of course, Mary I and Elizabeth I were the first two. Both Mary II and Queen Anne were married at their coronation. Um, She's the youngest woman to ever be crowned Queen of England, and her gender, even though it wasn't as much of an issue, still did cause some concerns. Um, initially she sounded like Elizabeth I when she talked about getting married. She said she was in no rush to get married and she perfectly fine on her own and she wanted to reign on her own. However, in some of her early missteps, um, she really had not been prepared to be the queen. She had been prepared to be dependent on her mother and John Conroy. So being the queen was a little hard. There was a little problem with Lady Flora Hastings. Um, there were some rumors about her and you know, Victoria sort of hung on to those rumors because at that time she hadn't yet made up with her mother and Flora Hastings was part of the Duchess's household. And um, she was perfectly happy to spread rumors that Lady Flora was pregnant because her stomach was swollen. In fact, of course, she was very ill. And Victoria insisted that Lady Flora have this very terrible and intrusive exam. And the doctors found that she was not pregnant. She was very ill. And it was really a difficult thing for Victoria because she had behaved inappropriately and very coldly. And the queen did go visit her, but Lady Flora died. And it was a bit of a bad mark for Victoria. And in the midst of that, while all of that was going on, there were political issues as well. Lord Melbourne, who was Victoria's first prime minister, and she was very close to him, um, he had encouraged her to go ahead and staff her household with wives of Whigs, with the supporting um, of the of his parliamentary party. I mean, that kind of made sense to him. And so Victoria developed relationships with all of these women. And then when he lost his vote of confidence in his party, he said, mm, we don't want you anymore. And he suggested Victoria call the Duke of Wellington or Sir Robert Peel. And he did say at that point, yeah, you're going to have to get some other ladies of the bedchamber. And Victoria said, no, these women are my friends and I get to choose my own bedchamber. And she just said it wasn't at all political. But actually, 
in the years since Queen Anne, the households of the monarchs, including the queen consorts and now specifically the queen, had become incredibly political. And it was very inappropriate for Victoria to be saying, no, I'm not going to listen to what Parliament's telling me to do. These are my friends and this is my private household. In fact, the monarch's household needed the approval of Parliament and it did not go well. But Victoria was holding her ground and she wrote to Lord Melbourne, which was completely inappropriate to be writing to the previous prime minister. And she complained to him, quote, they want to deprive me of my ladies and I suppose they would deprive me next of my dressers and my housemaids. They wish to treat me like a girl, but I will show them that I am Queen of England. Well, of course, she was not acting anything like the Queen of England, who should have known about the politics. Eventually, Melbourne was restored to office, and she thought this was a great victory. But the public was outraged. That was not the way the monarch was supposed to be using her influence. And she did start off with a bad foot. However, when Melbourne came back into power, he helped her, which he should have done before, but this time he did help her understand her position. And she began inviting Tory women into her household. Um, and, And people were thinking, boy, she's made these two big mistakes. Maybe she really does need a husband right now. Now, there were some new requirements in terms of the queen getting married. As I said, she was unmarried in the same way that Mary and Elizabeth. Mary's marriage to King Philip had not been exactly right. And so the idea was that her husband needed to be royal but not the king of another country. He needed to be somebody who would stay in England and have England as his priority. And she had met Albert before, but hadn't really cared for him. But he came back to England, and this time she was smitten. You can go to Kensington Palace and stand on the stairs where she looked at him. And of course, as he is the prince and she is the queen, she outranked him. And so she proposed to him and he accepted. And here's what she wrote in her diary. Oh, how I adore and love him. I cannot say. So they had a lavish wedding. She did wear a white dress. She wanted to show off this beautiful lace and felt like the white dress showed it off. Typically, a monarch would be married in royal robes, not in a simple dress, but she, of course, did not want to uh, sort of show up Albert. And so um, they were married in a, and she is wearing this beautiful white dress and he is in his very stylish military garb. And it is just a lovely image. And there are, we see the emergence of photographs of their wedding. And so in addition to some of the very beautiful portraits that were painted, we are seeing photography really come in to the family. So Queen Victoria and Prince Albert seem to hit it off immediately. And the babies started coming. Princess Vicky was their first child named for the queen. And she was a remarkable young woman, um, a real favorite of both of her parents. And she was soon joined by many, many people. 
Um, I thought one thing that was kind of funny, I mean, I mean, many, many more children. Um, in the television program, Victoria, I read that they didn't want to show the character of the queen becoming pregnant as often as she really was, because, quote, it might have been tedious for the viewers to have to see that many pregnancies. I thought, well, what about how tedious it was for Victoria to actually experience all those pregnancies? Um, she did not enjoy being pregnant. She was not crazy about babies, although as her children grew up, she developed strong relationships. Some historians wonder if perhaps Albert saw Victoria's pregnancies as a way to gain power himself. While she was pregnant and while the children were young, he was able to do more and more of the royal work while she became consumed with some of the mothering and the parenting that fell to her. And with nine pregnancies, and remember, she was a tiny woman, she had nine living, healthy children. It was quite extraordinary, and it did take her away from her work for a lot of the time. And that may have been um, Albert's plan. We don't know, but some scholars wonder about that. So again, in 1851, the Great Exhibition and the Crystal Palace in Hyde Park, it was very, a, a very successful event. It really was a chance for Albert to sort of showcase some of his interests in the sciences and technology and some of the new inventions. And it really spurred some of that spirit in Britain. Now, in 1857, Prince Albert, who was called Prince Albert because he was a prince of his own country, actually received the title, the official title, not just prince because you're prince of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha, but prince consort. So now he has a British title as well. The family is still quite German at heart, both Victoria and her husband, uh, speak German, they speak to each other in German. And so it's continuing this very German feel in the family. In 1861, there were a couple of just dramatic events in Victoria's life. First, her mother died in March, and she described her mother's death in very emotional terms. Again, she and her mother had grown very close. And then, of course, Prince Albert, her beloved husband, died in December, and she was somewhat derailed by his death. She really focused on protecting his memory and promoting his memory, and some describe it in her excessive, some say mourning, that she sort of turned her mourning into a performance. And she commissioned, of course, these monuments, the Prince Albert Memorial and and the Victorian Albert Museum, ultimately, and all of these monuments. And she retreated from some of the work that the monarchy was doing. Now, if you imagine the role Albert had been playing, he had been her friend and her secretary and her confidant. She deferred to him in every area of her life. And so one of the things she said was, there is no one to call me Victoria anymore, that everyone, of course, is now treating her as the queen. Now, that may not have always been the case, because this there is this relationship 
later with John Brown. Um, Julia Baird has written a wonderful book about Queen Victoria that I highly recommend. And she believes that there was certainly some kind of physical and very much an emotionally intimate relationship with John Brown. Some of the information in Victoria's diaries, of course, were destroyed when her daughter Beatrice curated the diaries before they were reserved for the public. So there's not really much mention. However, she did have this strong relationship with John Brown. And so that was going on. And then, of course, there was her moonshee, which you may have heard of as well. So she did have other friends um, after Albert's death, but it was not really until the Golden Jubilee in June of 1887 that she emerged fully back into her role as monarch. And Lord Rosebery really made a strong comment to her to get her out of mourning. She never really came out of mourning, but he said very specifically, the symbol that unites this vast empire is a crown not a bonnet. So she had been wearing this little widow's bonnet and he said, that's it. We've got to get her back in a crown. She still didn't want for her golden jubilee and for her public appearances to be wearing her scepter and orb and ceremonial crown. But she did have a very small crown made. It's tiny diamond crown that she could put over her widow's bonnet. And you've probably seen images of that. And if you go to the Tower of London, you can see her very small crown. So um, she wrote in her diary, the morning of her golden jubilee, quote, the day has come and I am alone. Albert has been dead for 25 years. An entire generation has grown up without knowing him. Now, that's an interesting thing that he was still so very much on her mind. And she later wrote about the reception she had received when she went um, to and from Westminster Abbey and all of the people. She said, it has shown that the anxiety and labor of 50 long years, many of which I spent in unclouded happiness, and then after being cheered on by my beloved husband, years of sorrow and trials. This has happened with being appreciated by my people. And so she really was appreciative of the warm reception. Then it was time for her Diamond Jubilee on the 23rd of September, 1896. Um, she became that year, well, in 1896, she became the longest reigning monarch and the Diamond Jubilee was held in 1897. So she surpassed George III, her grandfather, in 1896, and then was celebrated in 1897. She went to London. The city was covered in flags and banners, and the queen cheered. When she went to St. Paul's Cathedral for the Thanksgiving service, she was not able to get out of her carriage. So she sat in the carriage, and the um, Archbishop of Canterbury came down and conducted a service on the steps so that she could hear him. And then at the end, he shouted, three cheers for the queen. And so it was a very exciting time. So as as I said, I thought it was a nice way to sort of remember Queen Victoria, our previous Jubilee Queen. And as a special treat, I have invited my colleague, Dr. Candy Campbell, who knows quite a bit. She's an expert on Florence Nightingale and is sharing with us the interesting relationship between Florence Nightingale and Queen Victoria. 
So here's Candy Campbell and our discussion. Hey there, I'm Dr. Candy Campbell, award-winning actor, author, and filmmaker, and I'm currently touring with my third solo show, which is called An Evening with Florence Nightingale, The Reluctant Celebrity. Queen Victoria decided to write to Florence Nightingale during the Crimean War, and I wonder How do you think the queen chose her and why did the queen choose her? Because that power of writing directly to someone involved was the way, the primary way the queen felt like she was getting, quote, real news rather than news filtered through some of her ministers who told her what they wanted her to hear. So she was going for direct. So how did she choose Nightingale and why? Florence Nightingale, although she was from an aristocratic family, they were, she was very unusual because she was an independent thinker. She was really smart. And for whatever reason, she stood up to her male counterparts because she really felt that she was on a mission. She really felt that she had a calling from God to go and make a difference in people's lives in, in terms of health. And there you go. Queen Victoria admired her. I remember you told me, and I'm going to ask you to share again, how you, did you see one of the letters between them? Yes. For anyone who goes to London and visits Kensington Palace, I highly recommend it. It is a wonderful place. The main part of it is a beautiful museum, and it's a, a interactive kind of museum. And you can see the rooms where Queen Victoria was you know, her nursery where she was born, and then her study. And they have a desk there that has on it kind of a large Rolex, Rolodex looking thing. And they have several of the Queen's letters that have been laminated. And you can flip through them in a kind of a file. And so I was interested. I started flipping through them because I knew that they had uh, corresponded. And there I saw a couple of those examples. And it was, it was a thrill for me. I'm like, oh, look what I found. Now, what happened? Did these two women ever meet? And what was that like? She had been presented at court. It me- meant that she was in the aristocracy, but it didn't mean that her family or anyone like that ever corresponded with the queen. So when she went to Balmoral to meet the Queen and Prince Albert, do we have a sense of what that was like for her and how she felt about that? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. They were fast friends. And she talks in her journals about the conversations that went on. And they, um, the Queen and King, uh, the Queen and Prince, were enraptured with her. So much so, Victoria said something like they they wished she had such an intelligence, she wished that she could be in the war office, but of course, she was a woman. 
All right. So she she is able to meet the queen, spend some time, really exchange a very frank exchange of ideas, much as her letters had been. But it's one thing to write the queen and another to get an invitation. And as you say, business happens in Buckingham Palace. Balmoral is the private personal retreat. So to be allowed in there is uh, quite amazing. So as she had that opportunity, she shares her ideas. She really makes a lasting impact on the queen and on the way medicine is practiced for the future, changing so much that you say it's easier to say, what didn't she change? But if I were to say, I'm going to press you just a tiny bit here. If I were to say maybe what one or two things you think came out of this time, came out of the Florence Nightingale effect on the royal family, on the country, and especially the idea of the military hospital system. What are a couple of the highlights that you think came directly from Florence Nightingale? Okay, there were more, but I'll I'll name the first one. In May of 57, the Queen decreed a royal warrant of inquiry into the army health system because Nightingale of all the things that Nightingale told her. So this was a real straightening up. Interestingly enough in 57 that was the year of the Indian mutiny and what happened because of their talks, the queen appointed Nightingale. She couldn't give her a real job, but she asked and then appointed her as the uh, informal advocate, the ad hoc advisor on all things health and sanitation. I mean, that is extraordinary, this inquiry and then being the advisor. I know that the queen found special ways of acknowledging and honoring her. So what can you tell us about some of the ways that the queen honored Florence Nightingale? She was awarded a beautiful piece of jewelry, a brooch. It's called the Nightingale Jewel. I can't wait to see it in September when I go back. It's in the, uh, National Army Military Museum. She gave it back. It was designed by Prince Albert. It's it's beautiful. It has diamonds and a red cross on it with a VR for Victoria Reigns in diamonds. Uh, it's it's just beautiful, and it's engraved. It says to Miss Florence Nightingale as a mark of esteem and gratitude for her devotion towards the Queen's brave soldiers from Victoria R. 1855. For the queen to have Albert and for him to be involved um, in specially designing something for her really does demonstrate her value to the royal family, to the empire, and particularly to the queen's brave soldiers, as is right on that medal, and really the impact of the way she changed the way these soldiers were cared for is a lasting legacy. And it's something that I'm really um, glad we had a chance to talk about because when we think of the Victorian era, we tend to think of what's presented as sort of the highlights and the bright, shiny bits. 
but there were some dark and difficult bits as well. And individual people like Florence Nightingale, although in her time thought of as just a woman, really made an extraordinary difference. So thank you, Dr. Candy Campbell, for sharing all these things with us and helping us understand another side of victorious Queen Victoria. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Royals, Rebels, and Romantics. As we wrap up season two, get ready for some summer fun and look ahead to season three. I'm so grateful to have you joining us. So let's keep shaking up history together. <music>